Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two topics today, the Amazon fires and the alleged pro-democracy protests in Russia. First, the Amazon. The pictures of the burning forest in Brazil coming after the hottest month in recorded history, July 2019, have deepened our sense of climate apocalypse, and I haven't even mentioned the forest fires in the Arctic. Why are these happening, and what can we do about them? With some answers, here's Maria Luisa Mendoza. She's the director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Sao Paulo, and is a visiting scholar at the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Maria Luisa Mendoza. Fires are a, a long-standing feature of life in the Amazon, right? So how are these fires different in either quality or quantity from what went before? From last year, for example, uh, the fires increased 80%. This is the dry season in the Amazon, but uh, we have seen reports that uh, there were local uh, farm owners and um, local land grabbers that uh, are putting fires, and uh, that's the reason why it's increasing. Also, because since Bolsonaro took power, he's been saying that uh, he would allow the expansion of uh, soy production in the Amazon, that uh, he would not allow indigenous communities to have any right to land, he would allow mining exploitation in the Amazon, so basically, he gave a green light for people who do this illegal activities, deforestation, illegal extraction of uh, timber and uh, land grabbing to go ahead and just put fire, you know, including in uh, indigenous communities that uh, had their land destroyed. Also, Bolsonaro is cutting funding for the agencies that uh, control and monitor these illegal activities in the Amazon. Uh, he doesn't believe in climate change. His, uh, the, the current environmental minister used to do lobby for mining companies and also doesn't believe in climate change. Bolsonaro fired the the director of the Brazilian agency that uh, monitors deforestation, the National uh, Agency of uh, Space Research, that was putting out the, the numbers that uh, show how the deforestation is increasing this year since he took power. So, you know, all his policies and his rhetoric uh, were giving incentives for people to just put fire in the Amazon. How was the Amazon region managed during the uh, uh, presidencies of uh, Lula da Silva and uh, Dilma Rousseff? Yeah, the deforestation during uh, those years decreased. And uh, that's why, you know, there is so much attention to what is happening right now. That, uh, you know, already after the parliamentary coup, in 2016, uh, when the president, Dilma Rousseff, we said that uh, what happened at that time was a parliamentary coup because uh, the Congress impeached her, although the public prosecutor had already cleared her of all charges. So since then, uh, with the Temer administration already, we saw an increase in deforestation. And then, but this year, it, the situation is much more dramatic. 
Who is doing this exactly? I mean, these small local interests, uh, small miners and small farmers, or are there big interests behind it? No, it's just big agribusiness. The Amazon is the home of uh, hundreds of indigenous communities and small farmers that uh, have been living there for many generations. So what we have seen now is that uh, uh, this is mainly uh, to produce soy and for cattle ranching. And this is done by large agribusiness corporations. Of course, now there are local land grabbers that um, manipulate the situation in terms of um, having fake land titles, for example, that then are put in the market. But uh, you know, mainly what we are talking about is the expansion of uh, four crops that uh, are produced on a large scale, basically monocropping of uh, soy, uh, sugarcane, and then illegal uh, extraction extraction of uh, timber and um, also uh, cattle ranching that is done on a large scale. And is this uh, um, the, the soy and uh, the cattle, is this for uh, domestic consumption in Brazil or for export? Now, it's mostly for export. Over 70% of food produced for the internal markets uh, is produced by small farmers, not in the Amazon at all. So what we see now is basically large agribusiness corporations who want to take control over land. So I think the only way to stop this is if the international community sends a strong message to the Bolsonaro administration, because, you know, since he doesn't believe in climate change, I think the only message is to have a boycott, an international boycott of those products, beef, sugar, soy, and timber that are produced by large corporations that are, you know, commodities that uh, are also uh, commercialized by large multinational corporations. And uh, this type of uh, industrial agriculture does not produce jobs. It's mostly mechanized. For example, soy production is done in a way that is, uh, you know, extensive uh, monocropping that demands a lot of uh, funding, subsidies, and chemical imports. So this model of agriculture is a main cause of climate change because, you know, it demands uh, chemical inputs that are based on fossil fuels and uh, destroy the soil, destroy the water sources and biodiversity. And those are key natural resources that uh, we need to have a productive agriculture system to produce food in an ecological system that basically for internal consumption. So I think here in the U.S. and also in Europe, there is much more awareness about the need to support local farmers, ecological agriculture. But in the global south, we still have this model of extensive plantations that uh, mostly the commercialization of those commodities uh, is controlled by multinational corporations. So I think that uh, the international community can play a key role in this debate. You said this requires subsidies, that is, uh, from, I presume, the, the central Brazilian government. Exactly, yeah. The, I have done uh, studies about this because usually 
the agribusiness sector claims that uh, it uh, contributes, now they're saying they contribute to about 20% of the GDP. You know, this number ranges from 30 to 20%. But when you do the calculations, I have done this in several years, the amount of subsidies that they receive and the amount of unpaid debt is larger than the balance of trade. So agribusiness produces debt, financial debt, and environmental debt. So, you know, we are, people are saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, they want to develop the Amazon. This is not development. This is destruction. When you destroy the soil, the water sources, uh, also the Amazon has a, a, a key function in terms of uh, controlling the rain cycles in the whole hemisphere. Well, this is what we call the flying rivers. You know, the humidity from the Amazon is key uh, for the rain cycles in South America, the southern part of Brazil, and in other countries in South America. So if we destroy the Amazon, uh, the whole region is going to be like a desert. So we're not going to be able to have a productive agricultural system if we destroy the Amazon. So the model we're talking about here is large public subsidies to benefit a rather small uh, a group of uh, of miners and and uh, agribusinesses. I mean, we're, it's just uh, the use of public funds to subsidize private sector profits. Exactly. Brazil is the country uh, with the larger concentration of land in the world. Over 90% of farmland is controlled by like 1% of uh, large landowners. So, and this is the root of a lot of the inequality and poverty that we also see in big cities because, you know, this model of agriculture is also causing displacement of uh, uh, rural communities, indigenous communities. So then you have more inequality and uh, poverty in big cities. So, you know, we are one of the only countries in the world that uh, never had an agrarian reform. So land inequality in Brazil is also uh, one of the main causes of uh, economic inequality that we see in rural areas, but also in urban areas. Also, you know, this is not empty land. There are about a million indigenous people living in the Amazon, protecting the forest and doing agriculture for subsidy for many, many generations. And, uh, you know, the, the food produced by the small farming communities is key for their survivors and also for the economy of uh, small towns in rural areas in Brazil. So, you know, we need to to protect the the forest in order also and uh, other farming uh, communities that uh, have been protecting the land for many generations. I'm speaking with the geographer Maria Luisa Mendoza. The ownership structure that you're describing sounds a lot like a holdover from the colonial days. Yes, uh, this is actually a neo-colonial model. This is exactly what it is because. Mainly what they are claiming is that, uh, you know, Brazil needs to keep prioritizing an economic system based on plantations, large plantations of sugarcane, of soy, or, you know, beef to export. So this is not much different than the colonial times. The indigenous people uh, have a long history of 
managing this uh, land quite well, right? They know what they're doing. Yes, for sure. They have been living in the Amazon since before colonial time, before colonization, right? And uh, there are several studies showing that uh, indigenous communities are responsible for protecting uh, the environment in Brazil and in other countries. Uh, the UN put out a report recently showing how industrial agriculture is one of the main causes of uh, climate change. And uh, the report also shows how important it is to protect the indigenous communities and the right to land of those communities that uh, uh, play a key role in protecting the land, and uh, and that's the only way we are going to deal with climate change. You know, the main causes of climate change are fossil fuels, the military industry, and industrial agriculture that also depends on chemical inputs based on fossil fuels. So if we need to transform our food system, uh, we need to have a food system that is based on local farming, small farming, and with an ecological type of uh, food system. This is the only way we're going to deal with climate change. So we should be learning from the indigenous, not displacing them. Of course, yes. They have been doing this also. Uh, the food produced by small farmers, indigenous communities, and you know, communities that uh, produce food for subsistence and also for local markets, usually this is not even in any type of uh, economic data. It's not even counted. And uh, at the same time, what we have is... Uh, large agribusiness corporations claiming that uh, they contribute to the economy when it doesn't make any sense. Because if you have an agricultural model that needs machinery and chemical inputs based on fossil fuels, it's much more expensive than ecological agriculture. So uh, the only reason this sector can survive is because it receives a lot of subsidies. Otherwise, you know, agribusiness won't be able to even survive because they produce that. What attitudes uh, do uh, the broad public in Brazil hold towards the Amazon? Are, are they distressed? Are they indifferent? Uh, are they cheering it on? What's, what's the attitude? Well, the indigenous communities are sending out a message, a very clear message, especially to the international community, because their land is being destroyed. And uh, since the beginning, even before uh, Bolsonaro took power during the campaign, he already said that uh, indigenous people should not have any right to land. And uh, we just had a very large demonstration in Brasilia, in the uh, capital of Brazil, of indigenous women protesting against the government. So, you know, people have sent out videos on social media showing the destruction of uh, indigenous communities. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, the indigenous communities in Brazil are organizing, are protesting, are putting out their message the way they can through social media, through the support of uh, NGOs, human rights organizations that now are being also under attack by the Bolsonaro administration, claiming that uh, organizations that have the mission to protect the environment are the ones causing the problem. So 
So this is all fake news, of course, that he's creating because, uh, you know, he is happy with the destruction with the Amazon. He doesn't believe in climate change. He's been giving incentives to this destruction. So, but now because there is so much international attention, he's looking to blame anybody, even with the most absurd arguments. So I think it's important to keep monitoring the situation and uh, really uh, all organizations that uh, have uh, a way to organize a boycott. I think that uh, trade is a key policy, international trade, or even calling, for example, Congress members here in the U.S. and also the European Union, I think, has a key role to play in this and calling for a boycott of uh, Brazilian agricultural commodities from produced by agribusiness in Brazil. Are there any objections coming from you know, people in the cities in Rio and Sao Paulo? I mean, do they, they care at all? Or, or No, just a few days ago, uh, there were also demonstrations in major cities all over the country. So people are protesting, lots of protests, and Bolsonaro went on TV, uh, on national uh did the national broadcasting, uh, trying to calm down people and clear up his image a little bit. But uh, people were protesting during his talk on TV all over the country. So, yeah, I think that is much more awareness now about what is happening. And uh, I think it's also important for people to understand that uh, Bolsonaro only took power because there was a parliamentary coup against President Dilma Rousseff in 2016. And then the uh, person who was the most popular politician uh, last year during the elections was uh, former President Lula that was also put in jail, although there is no evidence of uh, a crime against him. But he was put in jail, and that situation created a political space for a far-right candidate like Bolsonaro to take power. Also, uh, we had a lot of uh, media manipulation in Brazil. All mainstream media uh, supported Bolsonaro. So it's almost like you only have Fox News in Brazil. And uh, also, there was a lot of uh, fake news spread on social media fake news against the progressive candidates, and you have the evangelical churches also all over the country that uh, manipulate uh, public opinion. The evangelical churches are an important part of his power base, right? Yes, exactly. He is very close to the evangelical church, and uh, and also this is a global trend, right? That also uh, We have also seen reports that uh, Steve Bannon is close to him and close to his sons and probably contributes some, in some way to his campaign strategy. His discourse in many ways is similar to uh, Trump's discourse in terms of climate change and uh, during the campaign uh, having a closer uh, relationship with the U.S. I think this is also uh, uh, one of the reasons why uh, the Trump administration is so close to Bolsonaro is to to change uh, the way that uh, uh, policies in Latin America, because we had progressive governments in many countries in the last decades, and now we had a, a shift. You know, we had the coup 
in Honduras, then uh, a coup in Paraguay, and then a parliamentary coup in Brazil. So, of course, I think there is some U.S. interference in those policies in, in the region. You said earlier that uh, international uh, action is important, boycotts, uh, shunning of Brazil, rejecting trade agreements and such. Now, of course, Bolsonaro and his uh, allies will say this is you know, foreign interference, it's neocolonialism, it's patronizing. Uh, how does one uh, take uh, you know, solidarity actions uh, against this regime without uh, falling into that trap? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, well, it doesn't make any sense what he's saying, because at the same time he says that uh, he is privatizing a lot of the key important national companies in Brazil, you know, the electricity companies, even the oil company Petrobras, he wants to privatize it, public banks. So he basically is opening Brazil, putting Brazil for sale and uh, privatizing key sectors of the economy. And uh, destroying the Amazon is basically to prioritize uh, agribusiness sectors that are linked to major transnational corporations. We call the ABCD, the you know, ADM, Bungi, Cargill, Dreyfus, and of course we have Monsanto. So we're not talking about giving priority to Brazilian industries or uh, you know the Brazilian sectors of the economy that create jobs, the agribusiness sector, they are mostly you know it's like large plantations that are mechanized. So we're not talking about generating jobs. Actually, there are just few horrible jobs, many cases of um, slave labor in those plantations. So, you know, this is just an excuse that uh, he's using because his policies are based on privatization of uh, key national companies. So, uh, in conclusion, um, international uh, action would be very important in trying to uh, put an end to this horror. Yes, because, you know, Bolsonaro is very close to the agribusiness sector, and the only message they're going to listen to, they're going to respond to is if there is a boycott. And we're just talking about basically four products. They don't produce many things. You know, agribusiness, they don't produce food. They don't create jobs. So mainly, you know, there's a few things, few commodities for export. Beef, sugar, soy, and timber. I think if there is a boycott of these four products, this is the only message they're going to understand because you know, they don't care about destroying the Amazon. They don't believe in climate change. So I think that, uh, you know, if people, for example, pressure their representatives here in the U.S., especially the ones that are in dealing with trade policy, foreign relations uh, issues, I think that is a key policy that uh, we can influence. That was Maria Luisa Mendoza, director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Sao Paulo, and a visiting scholar at the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. A frequent behind-the-news guest on the topic of Brazil, Alfredo Assad Filo, is traveling in that country and unreachable by phone. He was able to provide a few comments by email, some excerpts edited for radio. The burnings are not made by small independent farmers moving the frontier through their own initiative. These are mostly medium-sized capitalist enterprises that specialize in this line of business. Behind them stand the farmers, soy, cattle, who will eventually buy the land. 
It's similar at the mining operations. The small-scale miners are pushed out by the bigger firms that have machinery and teams of workers who destroy the forest to get gold, diamonds, etc. This is not petty commodity production. It's thoroughly capitalist. Another layer of complication, which explains the darkness that fell on Sao Paulo, is that the fires are concentrated around Rondonia State, where there is strong speculation of a railway to the Pacific for easier exports to China, so farmers want to position themselves for that. See so, you know, the quote from uh, Saad Filo. He also notes a fracture within the Brazilian business class as internationally oriented capital fears boycotts and reprisals from Europe, which has prompted some change in the government's discourse. But it's going to take a lot of pressure to turn things around because, as Saad Filo notes, Bolsonaro, whose popularity is ebbing, must keep his core supporters on his side. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the center wound hold from the new album by Slater Kinney, produced by St. Vincent. The song is an allusion to Yeats's The Second Coming, which includes some of the most quoted lines in English-language poetry. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Now, I love Slater Kinney, and I love a lot of Yeats's poetry, but we should be clear here. As Harold Bloom and other critics, like Connor Cruz O'Brien, have pointed out, these lines reflect Yeats's fascist sympathies. In other words, his best are the kinds of people most behind-the-news listeners would think of as the worst, and his worst, and their passionate intensity, are the ones we admire. Do we really want the Falcon always to hear the Falconer? So please, people, stop quoting these lines to disapprove of the current fascist upsurge, since they're an endorsement of an earlier one. Next, Russia. In recent weeks, we've seen rather large demonstrations in the streets of Moscow. They've been celebrated in our media as democratic outbursts, in opposition to the demonic Putin, who now apparently controls not just Russia, but the European right and Donald Trump. What are these protests really about? Here's a journalist, Yasha Levine, who was born in the USSR and has spent the summer in Moscow. Yasha Levine. There have been a lot of protests in Moscow recently uh, in the run-up to uh, some municipal elections in early September. What are the issues? What's going on and who's doing the demonstration? 
that's a good question. What are the issues? Because I think that's a central issue is that there almost are no issues. I think what you won't read about in the press, in the Western press, about these protests is that there's almost no um, ideological difference between the sort of liberal opposition um, that's uh, putting on these protests and, and, and calling people to come and, and protest um, the elections and the ruling clique, you know, Putin's uh, neoliberal ruling clique. There are almost no ideological sunlight between them. And so the real issue is procedural. Is there some sort of stylistic difference? Fundamentally, what's, what's happened is that there are um, a number of opposition candidates, opposition meaning that they're not like under the power structure, Kremlin power structure, one of the, uh, the main party, the United Russia Party. And so they are from smaller parties or independent candidates, and they're not being registered as candidates. Uh, basically, they have to collect all these signatures, and th- those signatures are being invalidated. So they're kind of being booted out of the, from the ballot, right? And so the protests are about letting these people back on the ballot, saying that invalidating uh, these sig- signatures is actually just a move to protect um, the ruling clique that sort of controls city politics, municipal politics, and also federal politics, and to protect the election and to keep them from you know, posing a threat on the municipal level. And so the protests are being, have been organized in July and August as a way of calling attention to, the, to this issue, calling for free elections and open elections. And they've been very successful, actually, uh, probably the biggest protests since the last round of big protests was in 2011, 2012. So it's been a while. And, and you know, um, just a few weeks ago, almost something like 30 to 60,000 people came out for a rally in the center of Moscow, which is a lot for opposition rallies. I was reading uh, a piece in Vox earlier about the uh, the election. And uh, yeah, you, you mentioned this. Uh, it said that you need 5,000 signatures to get on the ballot uh, and uh, officialdom frequently invalidates the signatures and throws people off the ballot, which to me sounded exactly like what happens in New York City elections. The idea that somehow this is uniquely um, obscene and authoritarian um, is, is pretty funny for a New Yorker to read. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, you know, there's something very, very weird thing about these protests is that there's almost like this strange belief in in the sanctity of the process of the democratic process. So if the democratic process is in in any way fiddled with, right, or the rules are broken by those in power, this is akin to totalitarianism. There is this kind of sense of like, well, what are you what are you talking about? Like if you're taking on the ruling elite of a country that basically that tries to rig all the elections or that tries to stage the elections or control them as much as possible to believe that you're actually not going to run into some kind of resistance, whether it's administrative like this with the, with the invalidation of signatures or it's more physical, right, where there being, people are being assaulted or, or jailed or just harassed in some kind of way, right? The, the idea that this is something that you shouldn't, you should almost expect, right, and kind of figure out ways to work around it rather than making it the central issue, the, the process, is, it, to me, seems a little bit naive and, and kind of ridiculous because when you see so many people out on the street protesting against the ruling elite of a country that controls not only stuff on a federal level, but also on the municipal level and, and regional as well, you think that the people who are coming out, calling on tens of thousands of people are coming out and risking arrest because a lot of people were arrested, taken together over, over a month and a half. I mean, I think maybe over 2,000 people were arrested um, and some people are still in jail. So people are risking their, you know, their freedom. Uh, they're they're being beaten up by riot police. So what is the issue here, right? What are they protesting for? What are they coming out for? And 
fundamentally, there is no real political difference between the ruling elite, which is a very neoliberally oriented, or in Russia they would be called liberals, and the liberal opposition uh, that's protesting them. It's really about like the, the clans that are in power and the clans that are out of power, and the kind of uh, urban elite that's been kind of out of power, and this more of a I don't, you can't make it. You can't cut the line so cleanly. But a more of a hick, quote unquote, hick ruling elite that sort of uh, um, surrounds Putin and the sort of state security apparatus, spies and military guys that surround Putin. Yeah, that was my next question. Like, are, do these people represent different social strata in some sense, even if there's not that much of a political difference? Yes, yes. I mean, there's a there's a big part of that. Of course, again, it's not 100% clean lines like this. It's very hard to draw such clean clean distinctions anywhere, but I think particularly in, in Russia. But there is a class difference here, a class and difference and an educational difference. So the 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 biggest oppositional um, forces that are sort of behind these uh, events, whether they're uh, opposition media or um, opposition political activists, like the biggest one is his name is Alexei Navalny. He is, um, you know, ran for president in 2018. He's been around for about a decade. And he is sort of the biggest force. He's he's built up his own political organization, a political party, essentially. You know, he can bring tens of thousands of people to the street. But these structures are very neoliberal, you know, for, for, for the sake of, for the lack of a, of, of a better word. And they have the support of a large part of the elite uh, that's even in government or close to the kind of governing power. And they are supported by this kind of urban intelligentsia, urban corporate workers, entrepreneurs, academics, people like that. But it's a very strong, educated, sort of small business, liberal elite that supports them. And and, and that isn't even necessarily against the actual politics of, of Putin's clan, but they just want something new and something different. They want to tackle corruption and they kind of are tired in this, this kind of creaky, you know, vertical of power, as they call it here in Russia. Uh, that, you know, that everything comes down from the top. I'm looking at a picture of Navalny here, and uh, I could, he looks like he could be running a Democratic primary. I mean, oh, well, yeah. I mean, he'd, he'd probably be closer to, in the Republican Party. I mean, he's, um, he's loved by sort of the Western press, and you'll see fawning uh, profiles of him in just about every uh, American newspaper and magazine. He's kind of like almost like a Yeltsin 2.0, you could say. You know, he's, he's moved a lot to this kind of populist sort of I don't even want to call it left, but he's, you know, for increasing pensions and he's for um, increasing uh, minimum wage and things like that. So he's taken over these sort of more of a progressive positions. But he comes from a from a very liberal, even, you know, nationalist, Russian nationalist background. Um, in fact, he was in his early career, he was very much involved in far right Russian nationalist circles. Um, and he's kind of moved away from that. But he's got these pretty insane, very racist videos that he made when he still wasn't really well-known. Racist uh, towards whom? People from um, the Caucasus, so Chechens, for instance, and, and people from that area. But he has a very strong anti-migrant and anti-immigration position. He thinks that you know immigration should be restricted in a, in a huge way. And he's kind of has this like Russia for Russians platform, although he's, as he's gotten more popular, he's, he's toned that down down and put that way 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 in the background of of his of his platform but it's still there and he hasn't repudiated so he is this nationalist patriotic liberal you know slash neoliberal kind of minded guy on the surface of it it's hard to say what he how different than he is you know from Putin and 
and the in the clan that surrounds Putin, uh, other than he's kind of have fresh face, he's younger, he's a bit more eloquent. You know, he's he's made a name for himself. You know, in the democratic way, he kind of came up from from nothing. He made his own political career. Yeah, he doesn't look like he drinks a fifth of vodka a day either. No, no, he's 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 kind of an interesting guy, I and mean, you have to give him you have to give him credit. He's he's been in 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 and out of jail for the last eight years. Uh, his his you know kind of people around him have been. Uh, investigated his brother's been thrown in jail for in this kind of corruption case which may or may not be true uh but of course it's politicized because that's why it's being kind of investigated so he's kind of impressive on, on one hand but on the other hand he's again when you talk about fundamentally you know when people come out for bernie sanders for instance you know you know that they su- support there's a, there's a, there's a different politics behind it people can't actually kind of talk about it but here there is no real difference only in appeals to say, well, like, this guy is less corrupt. We want someone new who isn't as corrupt. But the question is, okay, he's not corrupt now. Corruption is this thing that everybody runs on these days. It's a very neoliberal, favorite, favorite neoliberal um, uh, banner on which, on which to run. And everybody from, you know, Modi to Trump ran on corruption, right, or and being against corruption. Donald Trump ran on being against corruption in Washington, D.C., right? <laughs> but they just want to replace the, uh, the pre-existing set of cronies with their own friends. Yeah, and and there's this appeal here that you know these new opposition candidates that are trying to run for office in in Moscow, but also are you know trying to get eventually the idea is you get power on the federal level, is that they are democratic, you know, and you have even people who are on the left. There's a small left wing movement in, in Russia, and and some some of it is supporting these this opposition movement, along with kind of these more liberal or neoliberal organizations that are dominant in it. And the idea is that, well, these guys are democratic, they want a democracy, you know, they're for the democratic process. Uh, and so we're going to throw in with them and, and be, uh, be, you know, join this, what is essentially a, a neoliberal political movement, because we have the same political interests, because we want access to elections, we want to, you know, have a democracy, and we want to participate in democracy. But it's not clear that these people are democratic, other than they just want to be in power at this moment. And so there's this very, it's it's a very strange political movement, uh, and you know this this the, the lack of difference between the ruling clique and the opposition clique in, in in Russia, the lack of any political difference between them. You know you won't really you won't see that being talked about in any Western newspaper or any Western coverage of this stuff. I'm speaking with the journalist Yasha Levine in Moscow. Who are the people uh, demonstrating? That's a good question. I mean, there, there actually, there's a lot of young people who are demonstrating. I mean, people who are like 18-year-olds, 17-year-olds. I actually know a couple of kids, you know, 17-year-old kids. I think maybe one of them is 18, who were just, you know, who were arrested and, and uh, kept in jail for, for, for an afternoon and then released. There's a, a couple of different segments. It's mostly people from Moscow, I mean, in Moscow, because it's municipal elections. Um, they're mostly from, you know, a kind of upper middle <laughs> to upper classes, I'd say, you know. Very, very urban, very educated, pretty privileged compared to your average Russian. You want, if you want to know how privileged they are, I actually spotted someone with a baffler bag, a tote bag, <laughs> at the protest. Now, I don't even know how many people know. I mean, there might be 100 people who even have heard of the baffler in Russia, right? And one of them was at, was at the event, and I asked him, like, hey, where did you get this thing? How did you find out, out about the baffler? He's like, well, he studied abroad in London. And so this is a, like a 20-something-year-old kid. And so you have a lot of young people who are, who are into it because it's become very, very cool to, 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 to engage in, in political protests because everything else is kind of boring. And you have this set of 
you know, this kind of permanent opposition class um, that shows up to every protest. And you have people who are kind of pissed off and urban professionals uh, who are taking part in the protests. But look, you know, the people are not really willing to risk that much for, for this. I mean, people want to go home at the, in, the, in the evening, you know, no one's no one's no one's carrying sort of uh, tents to occupy anything. Uh, no one's really even, you know, no one's even really willing to do any property damage. Uh, and so you have this kind of, you know, protest surging in, in right in the center of Moscow, you know, and it'll be next to extremely expensive cars like Porsches and Bentleys and Mercedes limos and things like that. And people kind of like, you know, very, very, they, they are very uh, wary of actually causing any damage to the property around them. And so, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty weird scene. I got to be honest. And, uh, and even some people who are part of this are, are, are very proud of themselves that they're not like the protesters in France. You know, they're not those anarchists who don't um, respect private property uh, and who are breaking windows and uh, smashing things and burning things all the time. And so it's, a, it's actually a point of pride for, that they are respectful of private property, that they are that they're proper. And even so, the Kremlin does not respect them. This reminds me some of uh, the 1980s and, uh, you know, the, the Moscow liberals, the intelligentsia who wanted to make Russia into a normal country. Uh, by normal, they meant a Western European capitalist uh, society. How much continuity is there between that kind of formation and this? It's it's on the continuum. And this is we're seeing kind of a, a younger generation of that of that liberal um, of that liberal class. And li basically, yeah, liberals who want democracy, who want to live in a normal country. I mean, it's funny that you say normal country because. Actually, a lot of people in this, in, in, that are part of this movement and just liberals in general in, in, in Moscow actually talk about, you know, European countries like Germany as normal countries. And that's, you know, that's, that's to highlight that Russia is not a normal country. Yeah, well, that's what they were saying 30 years ago. And it's, people still think this way. And it's, it's automatic. You know, it's people don't even, aren't even, very, even aware that they might even be talking this way about their own country. So they live in an unnormal country. And... And, you know, the country doesn't really represent them. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's it's very similar. And in fact, I mean, I, when I look at Navalny and the, the, the organization that he's created around himself and the people who support him, I, I got to be honest, I don't really see much difference between him and and the people who supported Yeltsin and, and, and kind of that 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 whole liberal clique, because. There is really no ideological difference between them. I mean, I mean, the, the, even the, the you know the idea is that you know, for instance, he wants to lower taxes uh, to free up the entrepreneurial um, sort of spirit of Russia. I mean, right now Russia has a flat tax rate already. He wants to get rid of payroll taxes completely. He wants to do you know basically unlock Russia's innovation and all these things. And so it's like a, you know his his ideas about uh, revitalizing the Russian economy are really about again deregulating things and. Um, and again, lowering taxes, you know. It sounds like he could have a chair at the Cato Institute. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. I mean, it's very libertarian. In fact, one of the uh, faces of the movement, who, this kid, uh, this kid who goes to uh, um, university here, and he's kind of a popular political blogger. He has he has a channel on YouTube. Um, I mean, he's he's libertarian, right? So he does his videos with, you know, the "Don't Tread on Me" flag behind him. He's a Russian libertarian. I think he might be a member of the Russian Libertarian Party. The Russian Libertarian Party is small in Russia, but it's it still has a big presence, and it's helping put on some of these uh, some of these um, uh, rallies and uh, and events. So yeah, I mean, very much Cato Institute, almost a direct line from the Cokes to to some of the people who are uh, involved in the protests.
So how much resonance does this have with the broader public? Is Putin still popular? Yeah, I mean, Putin is still somewhat popular. I mean, his popularity has been dropping, but he is his popularity still remains fairly high. Uh, look, the latest um, thing that he did that that did that caused a big drop in popularity uh, numbers is that he he supported the increase in the retirement age from 60 to 65 for men. And I think the average life expectancy for men is like something around 60. So actually, a lot of the men won't even live to retirement age. God. And so, I mean, that it's pretty brutal. You know, this is what I mean. It's he's a uh, he's a very neoliberal president in the sense that he does have you know support state control, but the uh, his idea of of how to run the economy, how to run the country is very neoliberal. And this is is, is a manifestation. And so, one of the things that he's his legacy is essentially is that he is going to finish his term. He's going to be the guy who raised the retirement age by five years. So he is still pretty popular, but again, it's very hard to really gauge it. You, 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 people are either very passive about it. They realize that there's a lot of corruption um, in the country. They realize that there are these, that the, the, the ruling elite, the ruling clique that surrounds Putin is just robbing the country blind. And this is, I think, no one, no one is naive in, in Russia. Uh, but I think that people are, don't think that they can get any better and don't, don't really trust that, you know, these new faces uh, are going to be any different when they come to power. And that distrust is well-earned, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they've been—you know—the Russians have been screwed pretty, pretty royally uh, in the last <laughs> 25 years, and so uh, with a lot of bullshit promises and 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 uh, nice slogans. Uh, the way that I see it, one of the most fundamental issues that Russia faces, you know, economically, politically, is the privatization and the way that the wealth of the country was divided uh, after this collapse of the Soviet Union. Right? Who got to control that wealth? Who benefited from that wealth, and who lost? Right, and without really, and that just that that sort of the, that that game, the you know the chessboard, that's when it was redrawn, right? And it's still that way, right? Those who, who controls the wealth of the country, and why, and do they deserve it? Uh, and and this is needs, you know, this clearly needs to be reassessed, and yet no one really talks about that fundamental as, aspect of it. No one, no one talks about it. You go to these protests that are supposedly against Putin's and Putin's rule. And you don't really see anyone talking about, you know, the oligarchy. You don't really talking. Don't see anyone talking about privatization. You don't see anyone talking about renationalization of wealth. There's a small left contingent that maybe is talking about it, but they are so insignificant they're pretty much ignored by the rest of the movement, or laughed at, or mocked. So what what kind of effect are the uh, sanctions having? Well, yeah, the sanctions are well, no doubt. I mean, they've. Uh, made life uh, harder in Russia because they've they've um, one of the effects of the sanctions is that the ruble collapsed and so the ruble has lost a lot of its value in the last five years and things are a lot more expensive in, in Russia for for people so you know real incomes are lower uh, much lower uh, but at the same time the sanctions are having I think a uh, the reverse effect of of, of of what they're supposed to achieve right they're supposed to put pressure on Russia supposed to put pressure on Putin to kind of reverse these, you know, it's, it's aggressive foreign policy and kind of roll over and do what NATO and, and America want, right? Uh, to give back Crimea, to make peace with you know, Ukraine and, uh, and basically just kind of be a, a, a very passive um, partner uh, on the world stage. But they're not doing that because what they're really doing is they're kind of forcing um, the uh, development of the local economy. And so just, just coming here once every year, you see huge leaps uh, happening 
in the country um, with just, you know, in, just an internal sort of consumer market, basic products like, you know, beer, like locally grown che- made cheese, uh, even stuff like soy milk and oat milk, you know, which things that you couldn't even imagine being made in Russia are all made here. Whereas they used to, all that used to be imported from abroad. Uh, and no one, you know, no one sort of the ruling elite didn't really want to invest in its own economy. They would be happy just importing things for themselves and letting kind of the, the, the regular people or the, kind of the poor people just eat uh, buckwheat with uh, uh, with cucumbers and uh, and tomatoes, you know, uh, eat the basic stuff. Uh, and so and but they could afford it. And so, but things are changing now in a big way. And so the consumer market's really blown up. There's a so there's a there's a contradiction that's happening here, uh, whereas on the one hand people are getting poor and the definitely the, the purchasing power that people have is, is is has stalled pretty much and has almost not grown uh, in the last couple of years. But on the other hand, there's a kind of a, a more of a thriving internal economy because of the sanctions. And then finally, um, the latest insanity here is that uh, some of the liberals, uh, the liberal Russophobes in the West, the U.S. And, and Britain in particular, are claiming that Trump's idea to buy Greenland is actually uh, part of a Putin plot. Uh, how, <laughs> how's that sort of thing playing in, in Russia these days? I don't even think that people are aware of just how insane America is and uh, of how totally insane and, and of how much. You know, look, let's put it this way. Russia, you know, Putin, he, he's winning elections all over the world, but he can't really even fix elections without people coming out on the street in, uh, in Russia. He has a ba- better track record in America and in Europe in terms of elections and getting people he kind of wants elected uh, than he does in, in, in Russia. So I guess maybe he should start focusing more on domestic problems, you know, more on domestic elections, and maybe things will be going a lot smoother here. That's all I can say, and that's all I'm allowed to say. How's Yasha Levine, who's been in Moscow all summer? Everyone should buy and read his book, Surveillance Valley, about how the Internet has always been a project of the national security state. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another track from the new Slater-Kinney album, this, The Future Is Here, a complaint about our screen-induced dystopia. Till next week, bye.